0: Good afternoon, brothers. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to begin our breakout session for this hour. If you don't mind, let me begin with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful and thankful for the blessings of this day and for the total sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We thank you for this time together this week to sing praise to your high name, to fellowship around your word, and to be equipped and strengthened for the work ahead. I pray afresh now that you would renew us, focus us, ready us to receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. Help us by your spirit to think your thoughts after you as you have revealed the truth to us in the pages of the sacred scripture. I pray that you would... Guide my thoughts and govern my tongue so that everything I say would be consistent with sound doctrine. And may Christ alone be exalted as the word is explained, we pray. Amen. Would you get your copy of God's word and be turning with me to First Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament? I have been assigned a provocative topic and text for this hour. Uh, Last year, I preached through 1 Peter on the Lord's Day with my congregation. This was one message that I finished and buried away, expecting not to touch it again, but I've been asked to dig it up for today. (laughs) Uh, it's a provocative text, but, but hard texts make strong preachers. And I believe it is a relevant text for the times that we find ourselves in. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Amen. I want to uh, label this message a message for the mistreated. A message for the mistreated. African Americans like me instinctively bristle at a text like this. The sufferings that my foreparents endured as a result of Chattel slavery in America. You get uncomfortable when you land at texts like this that discuss slaves and masters. The situation is worsened because of quote unquote slave theology, in which slaveholders used texts like these to manipulate slaves and keep them in bondage. But the difficulty of the subject and the misuse of the text is not an excuse to ignore, minimize, or reject biblical truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The text before us, with all of its difficulties, is God-breathed Scripture, and there is a profitable message in it for us. This text marks the first time in 1 Peter where Peter directly addresses a specific subgroup. In the previous passage, he talks about those who are in the highest of status, emperors, governors. In this text, he will talk to those who are of the lowest status, slaves and servants. In the Roman Empire, slavery was status-driven, not race-based. One would be born into slavery. One could become a slave by being a prisoner of war, and unpaid debt. Could lead to slavery, or one could be sold into slavery by kidnappers. But by whatever means one became a slave, it was not necessarily one's automatic doom to experience a miserable life. In the Roman Empire, a slave, a servant, in some instances could be more educated than his master. They would be professionals in some instances who had servants of their own. And in the Greco-Roman world, slavery was not a permanent status. Through the process of manumission, a slave could be able to purchase his release. But all of these quote-unquote perks in no way changes the nature of the status of slavery. It was a horrible reality, and Peter does not shy away from it. He directly addresses it as he writes the elect exiles in this letter. He addresses here the bond servants in the local churches to which he writes, using a a different term here, a unique term here. He is referring here to household slaves specifically. This is in distinction from those who may work in fields and mines and may as a result have no direct relationship or direct dealings for the most part with the master. These household slaves were literally under the thumb of their masters, whether they be good or evil. And here, Peter writes to instruct these elect exiles who find themselves in these circumstances. He he writes to instruct them about how they should live for Christ in this hostile environment. What Peter does here is a little different than the way Paul writes on this subject. When Paul brings up this subject, he addresses slaves and masters. In his writings, he writes to teach Christians how to relate to one another in Christ, regardless of their status. Here, Peter is writing to help these elect exiles learn how to live for Christ in a hostile society. And so he does not address the masters in this text, but directly addresses the servants concerning how they should respond to mistreatment under ungodly masters. I wish the New Testament just made this a lot easier for us. Yeah? It would be easier if the New Testament directly rebuked the institution of slavery or directly called for its abolition, abolition. That would just make the process of addressing this a whole lot easier. But the scriptures does not do that. The apostles were writing to new Christians in fledgling churches. And they did not write, they did not write as social reformers or social revolutionaries. They wrote as pastor teachers. And I want you to kind of just step back. We'll walk through the text, but I want you to step back with me and consider the text in that light. Consider this text as an example of how in a biblical, Christ-honoring, pastoral way, you help the saints to think through some serious subject as... Injustice of the world and the mistreatment the saints may find in it. What Peter writes here does not in any way seek to overthrow the cultural system of the day. Yes, in a real sense, he writes to teach his readers how to live within that cultural system, but hear me. Though what the New Testament teaches about this subject of slaves and masters, though it does not seek to overthrow the cultural system, it does undermine the cultural system. It so undermined the cultural system of the day that not only did the way of Christ outlast Roman slavery, it outlasted the Roman Empire. Here we are reminded that Jesus is Lord wherever you live and work. That Jesus is Lord even in, over the mistreatment you may suffer when you have done what is right. What does it mean? to be faithful to Christ in the midst of mistreatment. Several lessons here as quickly as I can. Consider first with me the duty of submission. The duty of submission. That's verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. There are three lessons in this opening verse of the text about Christian submission. There there is first an exhortation to submission. Servants, be subject to your masters. The big exhortation that governs the section is in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. following verses, he'll apply that to governmental authorities. But now in verse 18, he begins to apply that specifically to the authority at home and work. And he says to the servants in these congregations, be subject to your masters. Be subject is a military term. It is the picture of a soldier lining up under the authority of a commanding officer. Literally, the language here and the grammar here indicates that he is calling the readers to submit willingly. Thus, it reminds us that God is a God of order. And because God is a God of order, he has structured that there is For there to be order, there must be authority. For there to be order, there must be authority. Someone must be in charge. It would be wonderful if it didn't have to be that way, if we could just all get along. But because we live in a fallen world and because we have a sinful nature, there must be some sense of divine order. And divine order requires submission to authority. And brothers, this is not a truth to be apologized for. I like the way Adrian Rogers used to say it, that if you are going to get over what God has put under you, you must first learn to get under what God has put over you. And so the text begins with an exhortation to submission. But would you consider there, secondly, there, the essence of of submission? He says in verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. With all respect. The word respect here is the word fear. It's consistently translated that way in 1 Peter. It is fear of God, not fear of man. And this is the essence of Christian submission. He is saying that willing subjection to others begins with holy reverence for God. It really has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with one's relationship with God. Paul S. Reese comments here that when motive is pitched so high that its ultimate quest is the approval of God. Something happens to the drabest job or the enduring of the meanest insult that gives it a touch of the sublime. Here he says that we are to submit because submission is essential to godliness. We're to do it out of reverence for God. In that way What Peter writes parallels, what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, bond servants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so in verse 18 This passage begins with an exhortation to submission, the essence of submission. Would you also note the extent of the submission? The extent of it. And he presents the extent of it here as unconditional. This is not selective submission. William H. Harrell writes, that there are limits to the responsibility of believing slaves to submit obediently to their masters. The line is not drawn, however, where man would draw it. I'll repeat that. There is a line, but the line is not where man would draw it. Verse 18 says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good And gentle, but also to the unjust. He presents here two kinds of masters. And the distinction is not about the profession of faith, it's not whether or not they are saved or not, It's, it's just about their conduct, their treatment of their servants. He says there are some masters who are good and gentle. That doesn't require much commentary. It is easy and enjoyable to work with or work under someone that treats you right. But he goes on to say that we are to submit not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The term means bent or curved. It's where we get the medical term scoliosis. It's 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 not just the good and gentle master you are, he says, to submit to. It it is also those who are morally crooked. Of course, there is not a call here to obey any command to sin. But he is saying that you cannot allow the character of the master to be an excuse for disobedience. We read this today as hard as this text is for us, but just consider that anyone that reads and works through this text as a believer today in our culture here in America has options that the original readers didn't have. The saints that are tempted to complain about their job or their workplace can, you know, quit. (laughs) Go find another job. They can report illegal or immoral or unethical behavior. But lean into what the text is saying to us. It is saying where the Lord has called you, where the Lord has placed you. You are not to live and serve there with a rebellious attitude. God is not honored by a rebellious attitude. And so the text begins with the duty of submission. But secondly, would you consider what the text says about the endurance of injustice? The endurance of injustice. As I um, worked through this text, my, my mind... Drifted back to the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. In a real sense, the story of Joseph is a story of injustice. Yes? Joseph was wronged by his brothers. Joseph was wronged by Potiphar's wife. Joseph was wronged by one of the Pharaoh's servants who promised to remember him. But when you read through the story of, Joan, of Joseph in the book of Genesis, it does not dwell on the suffering and injustice and mistreatment he endured. It traces you through the narrative so that you could see in the midst of all of his mistreatment, the Lord was with him. It is in that spirit That Peter writes this text to the elect exiles. He he does not linger on the unfairness of their condition or their circumstances. But he bids them to live faithfully for Christ. By and through and for the gracious favor of God. He addresses here, whatever the injustice one might suffer. he, He addresses here that they should endure it with a mindset and with behavior that God favors. Notice the mindset God favors. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. He says, verse 19, bottom line here, you may find yourself in a situation where you suffer unjustly. His focus, however, as he states this, is on our duty before God, not the difficulty of the circumstances. He says, it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures while suffering unjustly. Notice the key word here is endures. He he says that if you are suffering unjustly. He says, endure it, n- not escape it. Endure it, not escape it. No, he is not calling the readers to be a glutton for punishment or to suffer in silence or to do nothing to address the situation if they can, but, but he is calling on them to, to honor Christ in the midst of that situation, in a real sense, in a practical way, he is saying that the difficulty that you may find in that workplace, remember that from God's perspective, as it relates to your job, your sanctification is more important than your salary. If you suffer suffering unjustly, he says, endure it. Consider the difficult circumstances you find yourself in as a classroom where God is trying to teach you to endure. He says, if you endure while suffering unjustly, it is a gracious thing, he declares. It's a gracious thing. This is words of divine commendation. It is a word of divine favor. He says, it is a gracious thing when you endure sorrows and sufferings unjustly while being mindful of God. Note that term, mindful of God. If I can, again, draw your mind back to the story of Joseph in Genesis 39 and Joseph's confrontation with Potiphar's wife and she seeks to seduce him. Do you remember? Uh, Joseph said to Potiphar's wife that your husband has left me in charge of of his household and I could put my hands on everything in this house except you. Genesis 39 verse 9. How can I sin and do this great evil in the sight of God? Right? Not how can I do this to Potiphar, but how can I sin and do this great evil in the sight of God? The text says that it is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He is saying that we must practice the presence of God to experience the favor of God. God he shows first the, verse 19 the mindset God favors, but then he shows the behavior God favors. Yes, First Samuel 16:7 says, God looks at the heart, but here we are reminded. That the heart is the wellspring of life, and our behavior and our speech flow from what's in our heart, and God is watching the heart indeed. He is also watching our behavior. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, he says, you endure? Here, notice he doesn't shy away from the horror of ancient slavery here. He acknowledges circumstances in which, verse 20, the a master may beat the servant. But step back from that and listen to what he says. What credit is it if you are in sin and are beaten for it? If you are disobedient or rebellious or pilfering and are punished for it, what credit do you get from that? He, he is saying to us, God is not honored by any suffering that we receive because we have done wrong. So he bids them holding attention, the enduring of justified suffering in verse 20 at the top, to enduring unjust suffering. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. This is a commendable thing in the sight of God. This this statement here at the bottom of verse 20 personifies the whole matter of injustice. Look at it again. You do good and suffer for it. That's how, that's how the scriptures define and describe injustice. It's when you do good and suffer for it. It is one thing to do wrong and be punished for it. He says at the beginning of the verse, it's another thing to do good, to do right, to do the honorable thing and suffer for it, what, what do you do? In a real sense, he's asking when bad things happen to good people. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is a commendable thing in the sight of God. And in a real sense, he's arguing, brothers, that divine favor overrules worldly injustice. He's bidding them, he bids us even today, to, to look beyond the ways of the world, even when we must suffer mistreatment for righteousness' sake. Lift our eyes to God. We should stand firm if we are doing right, even if we must suffer for it, Because it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But there's a third element of this message to the mistreated. He begins with the duty of submission. He then calls for the endurance of injustice. But if I could say it this way, then he just begins to play dirty. Because as hard as this all has been for, for, for the readers to take in, he thoroughly addresses the example of Christ. In a real sense, if one is tempted to complain, if one is tempted to take matters in his own hand, if one is tempted to get even, he says, remember what Christ suffered for you. Charles M Sheldon wrote the book In His Steps 1896 Many of us remember when that book was rediscovered in the 90s and many Christians read fresh the story of this pastor who challenged his members For a year, not to do anything without asking, what would Jesus do? Somehow that that old novel became a contemporary craze. There was WWJD stuff to buy wherever you went. What would Jesus do? Is a good question, maybe. But you'll never get the right answer until you first ask and properly answer, what did Christ do? What did Christ do? Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He bids the saints to endure for two reasons here. The first is that God has called you. God has called you. The believer's calling is a key theme in First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then, of course, in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here in verse 21, he says, for this you have been called. It is a reference to effectual calling, the, the calling of God in his sovereign grace that leads the sinner to saving faith in Christ. But note, this same God who, verse 9 called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light, when he is addressing the subject of mistreatment and suffering and injustice, he says, for to this you have been also called. In a real sense, he is suggesting, brothers, that you don't mean it when you praise the sovereign grace of God in salvation if you cannot continue to praise the sovereign grace of God in the midst of suffering. Same God is in complete authority. For to this you have been called. He is saying to the readers that what you endure is, is not random or accidental or haphazard. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. He says to these saints who are suffering mistreatment, for to this you have been called. We are living through the victimization of society. And everyone in every category seems to rush to claim victim status as shepherds. We must be careful about adopting the the terms and the themes and the thoughts of the world. If the diagnosis is wrong, the remedy will never work. And here we are reminded that Christians must never view themselves as victims. The worst of circumstances is a part of the holy vocation of the child of God. He is the God who makes all things work together for good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 and 24. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds to it this little benediction. Verse 24, he who has called you is faithful, he will surely do it. God has called you. Then he says, Christ suffered for you. Notice verse 21 again. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the predicted king, suffered. The fact that Christ suffered is remarkable. The reason why Christ suffered is even more remarkable. Hold on to your seats. Why did he suffer? For you. Peter says he suffered for you. We don't have time to deal with the rest of what he says here, and that's no poor excuse for cheap excuse for poor exposition. There's a whole nother sermon's worth of time when you read verse 22 through 25. He committed no sin. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The suffering of Christ is not just the foundation of Christian theology, it's the foundation of Christian ethics, he says. Remember what Christ has suffered for you. Notice the pattern of Christ's suffering. He has left you an example to follow. After Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in the upper room, he says in John 13, I have left you an example to follow. But he is not just an example in service, he is an example in suffering. The word example here means a writing under. Children were taught to write and draw by tracing what was written under. Read these words and remember as a child. When the special occasion came, my mother would say, I need a new dress for that occasion. And we would go not to a department store. I don't even know what kind of store to call it. She would go to a store and pick up pattern and material. And I remember as a boy. She would lay out the material and then lay out the pattern over the material and begin to cut and sew. And and from a, a little package of a pattern and material that she had bought, a beautiful dress would develop. Christ is that for us. No one lived as justly as Christ lived and no one suffered as unjustly as Christ suffered. He says, when we are mistreated in this world, don't don't be consumed by the circumstances. Remember what Christ has done for you, the purpose of it. He has left you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. And follow me. I grew up in church. And I often in church heard. John 21 verses 15 through 17. Jesus conversation with Peter. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Care for my flock. Do you? Do you really love me? But in most of those instances, the end of the conversation wasn't addressed. Because after that exchange, verses 18 and 19, he gives Peter, the Peter of our text, a personal parable. He says, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, another will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. And then parenthetically, John says, This he told Peter to describe for him by what death he would glorify God. And then Jesus says to Peter, In light of that, follow me. It is a reminder, brothers, that following Jesus will sometimes lead you to places you do not want to go. Yet he who is worthy bids us nonetheless, follow me. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for its wisdom, its truth, and its authority. We acknowledge Yet our thoughts and ways are not like your thoughts and ways. Your thoughts and ways are infinitely higher than ours. But you have given us your word from your mouth, Lord, so that we might think your thoughts after you. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would teach us to bow the knee of our intent to your divine authority. That we would not be squeezed into this world's mold of thinking, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that even the way Peter writes here in the sacred scriptures as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit would be an example to us as shepherds to boldly, faithfully proclaim your word without apology and to help our people to face the circumstances of the day with the mindset of Christ. As your word has been planted and watered even this hour, grant the increase, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.